Today's March 1st, 2012. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Neil Waxham. He is the William Willis Endowed Professor of Neurobiology and Anatomy at the University of Texas Medical School at Houston. His work centers around describing the molecular level dynamics of um, underlying synaptic plasticity from the combined vantage point of a structural biologist, protein chemist, and biophysicist. So we have a little group today. We've got, um, oh, hi, Neil. How are you? Hi, very good. Um, we've got Fidel Santamaria. Hi. And we've got me. I'm uh, your host, Salma Karashi. So, Neil, all your, um, your work centers around building an integrated cellular model of how calcium-dependent events lead to long and short-term changes in synaptic structure and function. So you are particularly concerned um, with spatial relationships and geometry of the synapse and the parameters that influence molecular movement and interactions in this um, cluttered viscoelastic intracellular space, right? Um, and the scope of your work is apparent in the range of techniques you use in your lab, ranging from in situ all the way to in silico. Um, so can you give our listeners a quick overview of your toolbox? Just... Yeah, we, we take uh, kind of four different strategies to address this central problem, and it's, it ends up being an information processing problem overall. I think that's, that's kind of a common theme for many people like this, is uh, trying to figure out how uh, signaling cascades uh, are integrated to process inputs and, and give you a, an output. So uh, we actually use four different types or styles of um, analysis. One is old-fashioned biochemistry, uh, in particular focusing on on rates and off rates of molecules, which are often missing parameters uh, required to do quantitative modeling. So um, much of the work we focus on is uh, through calmodulin, and calmodulin is a one of the calcium decoders and is responsible for transmitting that signal downstream. And we're actually lacking many of the rates associated with the uh, transformation of that signal, uh, input calcium and output, then activation of downstream molecules. So that's that's one thing that the lab spends quite a bit of time doing. Um, the second is structure. And specifically, we're interested in nanometer level and hopefully someday angstrom level structure, uh, but is applied to a synapse as a whole. Uh, so our fantasy is to be able to rebuild a synapse in um, accurate geometric and compositional um, detail uh, and then be able to use that to extend experiment or extend um, thinking and test ideas where experiments have reached their limits. Uh, so that structure is often done through the analysis of uh, the structure of isolated molecules and more recently been looking at the structure of the postsynaptic density. Uh, which is an organizer for many of the signaling molecules of the synapse. So that's that's kind of the second phase. The third is also to be uh, accurate in our thinking. Uh, we'd like to know how fast molecules move uh, in space. So uh, one of the underlying ideas is we like to build kind of Venn diagrams for um, areas of potential interaction in space, uh, and to do that, we need to know something about how fast molecules can investigate the volume they find themselves in, uh, and that's done using uh, fluorescence spectroscopy largely um, as the uh, tool we, we employ for that. 
Um, and then the last thing is uh, computational work. So again, our fantasy is to build a spine in silico with enough constrained information that we can really test ideas that are sometimes beyond uh, what an experiment experimentalist would have access to. So you're kind of doing that with the with this simulator that you created. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yoshi Yoshi Kubota in the lab has developed a ground up simulator um, that tries to account for some things that are uh, otherwise difficult to compute. Uh, so the space inside cells we consider is crowded, uh, and you need a simulator that can manage uh, that the crowded nature of that environment uh, and accurately account for those collisions, what happens when molecules are trying to traverse that space. Um, so his simulators has, has that capability, and it also has the capability to... Um, calculate uh, probabilities of interactions then to manage the chemistry associated with the interactions that we're, that we're interested in studying. So. so how long have people appreciated, have researchers appreciated that crowding is, is, a, is, is something that needs to be addressed at the synaptic level? I mean, this is a fairly recent development in, in, in biology, yeah? Um, I, I don't know the complete history of crowding uh, and that idea, but uh, I can tell you it's understudied for sure, uh, underappreciated for sure. Uh, so it's probably at least been 30 or 40 years since people have started looking at the idea of macromolecular crowding as a process. And I, I would guess the history of that comes more out of physics and thinking about soft matter and, and kind of how, how the interactions there occur. Um, as far as um, what kind of impact that can have on processes. Uh, it's probably only been in the last 20 years that people have, from a cell biology perspective, have really started to come to grips with the idea that the cytoplasm is not uh, PBS. It's not, it's not simply uh, a dilute solution buffer. I, I think buffer. like Dennis Bradley was pushing this idea, I don't know, 20 years ago in... Uh, his was one of the first uh, uh, simulators, right? Like uh, they were trying to implement this Smolochovsky mm -hmm. um, um, approximation of the of the, the Smolochovsky approximation is how the to draw a probability distribution of a molecule going through a crowded field. Right, that's from theory, and they they saw that this might be happening in one of the bacteria he was working, and uh, I think it was called Smolden mm -hmm. or Small Dev. No, Smolden is Smolden. Uh, somebody from UT Houston. Smolden. <laughs> Smolden. Uh -huh. uh, so I think they they tried to do this. Probably they, the the first paper I saw that was like in two thousand one maybe mm -hmm. from from the simulator um but yeah i mean it's it's a kind of something that has not been investigated very well right i mean the, the the standard hypothesis at least in neurobiology is that the viscosity of the cytosol is homogeneous mm -hmm. across the dendritic tree that's something that we assume um when we assume that the axial resistivity is equal yeah. right yeah. And that's, some, that's something we know from our own work is clearly not an accurate representation. Now, how complicated it really is, I think, is an open issue. But um, just returned from the biophysics meeting, and there's now a subgroup 
mm-hmm. that is called in vivo polymers that's specifically trying to bring some recognition to this problem generally mm-hmm. uh, of, of the crowded nature of cytoplasm and how that might influence uh, all biochemical reactions. So. Okay, so let's get right into it. So you spent a lot of your career on CAM kinase 2, which is a superabundant brain protein. It's involved in neuronal outgrowth, synaptic plasticity. It has numerous binding partners. It has a role in synaptic stability. So basically, it's huge and not an easy target. Yet, in the last few years, you've managed to describe the 3D structure and enzymatic properties of all its four isoforms. You've described some of its unique aspects um, of, of its cooperativity with, with CalModulin. I could go on here for a while, but what I want to focus on for at least part of this discussion is the role of CAM kinase 2 as a structural molecule by its orchestration of actin and spines. So you have some, I mean, you've spent a lot of time on this. Can you introduce uh, our listeners to some of that work? Yeah. Um, so um, we are taking, building on actually a significant body of work of others who had already showed that the different isoforms of CAM kinase 2 um, differentially interact with the actin cytoskeleton. Uh, and that's some of the other, some of the things that you mentioned on the fly about the role of these different isoforms in modulating actin kind of properties and, and shape changes and the right outgrowth and all that. Um, the reason we got interested in the idea generally is um, it seems simplest to think about steps of induction being chemically transformed changes, um, but um, long-term stability coming from structural changes. So it's, it's kind of a fundamental um, that is not surprising and not new. Uh, that's kind of the brain is still the brain, and you, know, you can find synapses that live for uh, certainly months on end. So it seemed to us that it, instead of trying to build complicated networks that have to deal with um, a constant, ch- constantly changing environment, that it was easier to change the structure and then have that structure be read out as the stability change necessary for plasticity. So, so our thinking has evolved a little bit over time. And my original interest in CAM kinase 2 were because it was an autophosphorylating enzyme that had some of the properties of a molecule that Francis Crick described uh, a long time ago that would be ideal for a, a memory molecule. But that process and sustained use of ATP and just the balance required for maintaining something at a steady state uh, in that way, just uh, I just don't like generally. So, so that's been a transition for our work in the last five years or so, has been trying to consider how a chemical transformation could be encoded into a structural change at synapses that would also maintain synapse specificity, which is also something of interest. Um, and so that's how we got into the actin cam kinase 2 story. Um, so is, uh, is there another detail there that I... It's just your model, basically. Okay, we can, we can oh, okay. stop there. <laughs> so... Um, how do, should we go, get into all the details of that, or should we just sort of do it as an overview? Well, I think we can... Um, I think the, the main difference, right, um, just for the listeners, I guess, the way I see it, is that the paradigm has been that everything is encoded in biochemical reactions. And the structure of the brain has not... The structure, the nanostructure, has not been taken into account in fact, 
it seems that one view or the assumption is like the biochemistry is to compensate for that complexity, right? To make it linear, right? To average out the complexity of the brain. And I think what several labs are thinking now is like, well, the, that's very expensive, right? As you mentioned, in, because you need to keep adding energy. So how are you, I mean, how can you have some, some stability for a long period of time without, that, that is not expensive, right? And the structure or the nanostructure, either you, there, there are two hypotheses. Either you construct these molecular machines perfectly aligned that, are, that will require a lot of energy, right? And the other is this molecular crowding. Right? That there's some, at least theoretical evidence, and there's some experimental evidence in chemistry that given the right molecular amount of molecular crowding, uh, the efficiency of the, of the biochemical reactions will increase with respect to a homogeneous test tube. So, and that's also, it will create, create generate nanocompartments, if we want to just use a buzzword. So then you don't need to like anchor a protein uh, with, an out, with a phosphorylation process that you have to feed all the time. You just have to, like, jam it. And uh, I always think about, I, I mean, I grew up in Mexico City, so I know about uh, subway platforms during rush hour. So I always think about that, right? Uh, which is very different from a really nice, I don't know, I, I imagine the Seattle subway is like that. Everybody's like nicely organized, but um, uh, you cannot move, right? Or you move when you, you don't want to move. And that is en zero energy in principle. You just have to produce, you have to make a bag, which is a cell, then you have to produce molecules. Right? And now this evidence that if you make a, a cell, not a neuron, but like a HeLa cell swell, the molecular crowding will, the, the, the cell will produce enough proteins to keep that molecular crowding at that level. At like forty percent, let's say, and if you decrease the volume of the cell, the cell will reduce the number of molecules to keep the same amount of molecular So let's flesh some of this out for our listeners a little more in terms of calmodulin and its structure and how it lends itself to interaction with actin and what activity dependent changes or what, or what synaptic activity how it can actually transduce into a structural change at the synapse. Can you like walk us through a little bit of that? Yeah, that was. Um that was um, work that started as a transition from this chemical transformation to structural transformation. But um, basically the idea is that calcium interacting with calmodulin can be a trigger to activate CAM kinase 2. And in that activation process, what we discovered is that uh, actin no longer interacts with at least one of the types of CAM kinase 2 that's found in the brain. And it causes a dissociation of that kinase complex from the actin cytoskeleton. So this was an important coupling between calcium fluxing then and um, known changes that happen at synapses, structural changes that happen at synapses, uh, with a way to then change the underlying actin cytoskeleton that could be the transform transformation event uh, to then alter the structure in a stable way. So. Uh, it's cam kinase interacting with both monomeric and multimeric uh, filamentous actin, uh, and that that is a calcium-regulated step. 
that we found most intriguing about the possibility of the actin cam kinase two. So there's a dual role there, is, is what, what you're saying. So there's a that's right. So the dual role is that given the concentration of cam kinase two at synapses, that it can and it binds the actin uh, in its basal state, that it can actually form a reserve pool for actin. And the calcium influx then will release that actin, and it's available then for the polymerization that is required for building actin, new actin filaments or growing on existing actin filaments. So you have some simulation studies where, where you've looked at like folding energy landscapes of calmodulin and in crowded environments, and, and you've shown that it has actually a very different ability to interact with its binding partners based on crowding. So is that another way you can have cam kinase two? regulation of actin being modulated? Because I, I know you've shown that stoichiometry is a 9 to 1 ratio between actin and and, uh, and chemkinase 2, and, and that would mean that you have a huge amount of bound actin at, at any given time. So is crowding something that would influence this and, and, and maybe allow for liability in the matrix? And, and I mean, is that the way you imagine it happening? Yeah, the, the crowding idea we haven't actually dealt with significantly for this particular problem, but certainly crowding would produce an increased probability of interaction um, if between the molecules actin and the, and between actin and chemokinase 2. Yeah, our, our other studies are unconfirmational studies, which have to do with just intramolecular kind of um, so shape really changes. So it's a, little more, it's a little more difficult to extrapolate, but... Uh, I think the idea that you have energy landscapes for these events and that crowding can influence the probability of molecules living in different wells within that landscape is fundamentally important. So uh, specifically for this problem, we haven't addressed it, but certainly for calmodulin, we have. Uh, so, um, and calmodulin is, calmodulin is kind of the first step in, in, in transducing the calcium signal. So yeah. it's all yeah, sort that, of... That kind of leads leads to a, a kind of an interesting other question about calmodulin generally is is what determines what target it interacts with, mm -hmm. uh, and this is where we think something understanding more about what kind of energy landscape it can sample and how crowding in different environments might influence that could actually end up determining, in part, which target proteins that calmodulin actually interacts with. So again, it's it's a little distinct from the actin cam kinase two story, but uh, the idea that crowding can influence both intramolecular kind of events and uh, intermolecular events in the spine, I think, I think are both relevant relevant questions. So you you shown via EM and cryotomography that there are um, distinct organizational changes in the molecular architecture of the postsynaptic density over the course of development from embryo to maturity. Um, can you uh, tell us about? PSD assembly and relate it to what we understand about synaptic pruning and other age-related changes that we see in synaptic structure. And then this is sort of the next question. Um, does this extrapolate to models of aging and dementia? Because, I mean, fundamentally we're talking about learning and memory here. And can, can we imagine that degradation in information processing and retention um, associated with aging could be defined at the synaptic level as opposed to, you know, at the sort of circuit level? I guess you kind of have some ideas about that yeah they are but they're not well certainly not well formulated but I mean the basic the basic uh, experimental drive for us right now relative to postsynaptic density work is uh, is asking a question about how it's assembled and that's the developmental studies you you note because there's been 
a reasonable history uh, associated with looking at the biochemical, the biochemical nature of the PSD and the proteins that are in there uh, through EM, other EM studies or proteomic kind of analyses. So we have a pretty good map of the proteins that are present or a list of the proteins that are present. What we don't have is a spatial map for how they're organized and we don't really understand how the PSD assembles. So our long-term goal really is to understand assembly first and then by understanding that assembly process, we might be able to speculate on what to look for in um, more subtle forms of changes that might lead to synaptic plasticity, still targeting structural changes in the postsynaptic density or chemical changes for that matter. Um, so um, so that's, that's kind of the underlying experimental drive at the moment. Uh, and I forgot the second part of your question. It was about more about can, oh, the, the next level of the progression from, so from, from embryonic to maturity and then the sort of degradation yeah, what, what process. What do you know about PSD in, in, uh, like in aging? I, I haven't read much about it. Yeah, you know, I don't really think there's been good you, studies like we have done wow. as far as morphology changes So you in go out to P60, brain. was that... That's not aged. That's not a considered... P60 is it's considered mature. a mature adult for a rat. Yeah, so certainly not aged. Uh, we know there's synaptic loss in certain neurodegenerative diseases and in the aged brain. Uh, whether there's a role for this kind of, uh, some kind of structural modification uh, in the PSD or with the chemistry underlying that, I think is an open question uh, that in thinking about it, we should address. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, there are these, I, I mean, um, some, some work of uh, Mike Ehlers, right, and it's shown that during activity, the PSD can be a little bit flexible, right? I mean, it moves, I mean, you can call it like breathing, right? And you can think about that as changing the uh, mesh size mm -hmm. of the PSD. And one thing to, I mean, and arguing that, I mean, I'm just thinking very broadly, PSD is one of the most conserved molecular machines in evolution. So maybe the, the, the overall structure doesn't change, but maybe these relatively subtle patterns, right? Like how flexible the PSD is, or how they, uh, if you can define um, uh, uh, inter, uh, uh, the average space between the molecules at the surface that are in contact with the, uh, with the synapse, that they face the synapse, maybe that becomes less flexible um, or more broadly or less broadly distributed over aging. And those are small changes that are more difficult to get unless you use these very sophisticated or more modern techniques like tomography, you won't be able to answer them. Right. So you, so you, the major organizational change you find over from from embryonic to maturity it, uh, is basically that. So you have the the um, sort of s structural mesh available there from the very beginning, and and then the proteins sort of the, the aggregate around that are filled in later. Can you can you explain some of that a little better? To yeah, no, I, th I think that's actually a pretty good encapsulation of what we understand so far. Is um, it seems like there is a, uh, an underlying meshwork. Uh, how that initially gets laid down is still an open question, but um, of globular proteins and filaments that seem to build uh, the basic um, foundation of the PSD that then other proteins get recruited onto. Uh, so, and we know that transition uh, is a relatively slow one. Uh, 
taking probably at least two or three weeks to fully form, um, at least in, in rat and during development of rat brain. So, um, the, the hope, and this is what Fidel mentioned before, uh, is in looking at fine structural detail in the organization of molecules that we might find that there is actually a more modular construction for the PSD than we presently appreciate. Uh, and the Ehlers study that he mentioned was uh, one that actually drove some of our thinking about this because he not only did he find some of the changes more globally, but he also found they tended to happen as modules. So it was like there was sets of uh, particular proteins that would either get uh, added to or taken from the PSD uh, of neurons that were in different states of stimulation, either excited or inhibited, uh, which lends an idea, lends to the idea that these these uh, complexes within the, within the PSD might be built as small modules. And if you believe that, then the recruitment of these modules might be important for the underlying plasticity that happens. And that's in part some of the story that we'd like to evolve in the future. So, like... In a spine, right? If if it seems that the spine, uh, the structure seems to be depending who you ask, it seems to be highly organized, right? It, it, there's the cytoskeleton. Whenever you induce LT, LTP, there, I mean, at least in some, under under some conditions, there's a swelling of of the of the spine head, or there's a shrinkage of of the volume. And that goes hand in hand with some, depending on the interpretation, it seems to be a very structure, uh, a polymerization of an acting or not. Right? Then you have the PSD that, uh, also depending how you look at the, the data, it seems to be a, reg a very regular structure of, of heterogeneous components, right? That's why maybe it will look a little random, right? Each, each component is organized, but it's not with reference to the other components, and that's how you create that dense mesh. Uh, so it seems that in that sense, it's a very regular, targeted uh, structure that has to be encoded, or it could be suggested that it's encoded, right? But on the other hand, I mean, all this talk that, I mean, at least I like to talk about this kind of crowding, is like you don't need that, right? Um, you just need to phosphorylate, and just because you laid out the the, the scaffold, right, the scaffold will be the basic connections between Homer uh, and the PSD from the PSD to um, to the cytoskeleton, and that will be almost enough, right? Uh, uh, you just have to like like crowd it. Right. Where, where do you think? Uh, do you think it's more like a highly the synapse, the spine is a highly structured, highly of, um, uh, like um, almost like a program structure, or is it just like an emergent property of 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 the synapse? Yeah. The one of the things we found is even though there's heterogeneity, is there there's also consistencies which kind of lend the idea that it is more organized than we originally anticipated, and I think that also drives kind of our hope that some of this modu the modular thinking might actually be true, uh, so that things aren't completely stochastic in the way they're organized, and in fact that actually leads to the 
kind of the functioning, the important functional properties of the synapse. So the the kind of idea of an <clears throat> emergent property, though, um, I, I don't think, and certainly our work can't sp speak to it. Um, because in that in that concept, what is the what is the function of a spine? Right? Is it is it uh, the shape of the spine is because things just aggregated there and then it becomes like a little polyp coming out of the of the dendrite, or is it something that is encoded and is part of the central function of the near of the neuronate? It has, it has evolved to compartmentalize. Uh, uh, information. I know it's, it's a little bit uh, off, but uh, it's, it's a fundamental question, I guess. Mm -hmm. and w why do we need spines? Yeah, yeah. The uh, it's it's yeah, it's kind of reaching pretty far for me too. Yeah. The uh, I guess I can start with some kind of things I think we understand, um, and then speculate more. Oh, uh, yeah. So. One of the things that we've been trying to investigate is things like the shape of the spine and how that influences either retention or um, uh, other downstream other downstream effects. And surprising to me was that uh, the spine is not a very good compartment for keeping molecules around very long. And it's a simple problem, well-studied problem about um, escape. Uh, so you have a volume and you have a, a neck and an opening in it. And there's some pretty well-developed theory about how molecules can escape from an area like that. And it seems less like the spine is actually a, um, a necessary compartment for keeping molecules present there other than it allows them to search the volume. So if they didn't have an opportunity to search the volume properly, then uh, they might not find the appropriate types of interactions required to assemble, for instance, into a PSD, so or, or to be recruited into and kind of change the structure of the PSD. So, so one of our thinkings about spine shape generally is just that it, it actually serves a boundary to uh, provide an appropriate search searchable environment for individual molecules to be able to find their targets. Right. And once they do, they can be stabilized by other chemical interactions. And then the system can um, kind of have have a new a new state. So the idea of kind of the spine shape and the importance of the spine shape, I think, is uh, as much to be able to just provide a um, a transient constraint so the molecule can search that space properly. Uh, so. Which is uh, changing. I mean, I I, um, I think more people. Um, take that uh, are taking this view. I mean, it started like um, one idea forty years ago was like it was compartmentalizing electrical signals, right? Um, the work of Christian Harris in the first serial reconstructions of the spines, and at the, I think that most of the people read the first parts of the uh, of those papers on Purkinje cells and pyramidal cells. But at the end, she did the uh, like the simulations the, the, of well, how much uh, coupling, electrical coupling, will be between the spine and the dendrite, and there was not much. Mm -hmm. And now we know that calcium is more compartmentalized there because of there are a lot of buffers, right? Otherwise, it will it will leave. 
right? So it seems that the spine is there to um, either trap the molecules that are rushing mm -hmm. for a little while, uh, given other molecules, right? Or, or I mean, what we think is that it's also there to trap the molecules that are traveling along the dendrite, mm -hmm. right? So they can find their targets and have time um, to to bind. Right. Mm -hmm. seems, seems like some of your simulations actually did show that it's a really efficient way to trap molecules and that very small, subtle changes in actin um, can actually lead to just complete sequestration and, and loss of diffusion out of it, or trapping, I guess, is a yeah, term, right? So there's, there's kind of three, three things to think about, I think, in the lifetime of a molecule in the spine, at least if it's not actively pumped in and out, if, if those processes are ignored for the moment. And that's the shape of the spine, binding targets within the spine for that particular molecule, and then any kind of physical barrier you can imagine to uh, prevent the molecule from exiting through its normal, its normal spot in the spine neck. So some of the kinase-actin interactions that we've been looking at more recently uh, suggest that a relatively modest <clears throat> change in the structure at the spine neck boundary could actually form a very effective uh, barrier to cam kinase diffusion out of the spine. So in that regard, then, uh, the easiest way to trap a molecule in that space is to present it with a physical barrier. And again, it's not energy dependent, but a physical barrier that can prevent the molecule from exiting. So um, that also increases its probability of interacting with other molecules again. But uh, that, that kind of idea that there might be a, a barrier right at the spine head neck junction um, produced by actin and chem kinase 2 interactions is intriguing for uh, maintaining molecules uh, within the spine, at least of a significant size. So so what, what technologies are you most excited about? What's sort of the next level of resolution? What do, what do you need? What's the next tool that you need to address some of the biggest questions for you in terms of looking at um, how we get from activity to reorganization? Yeah, I think, I think our needs huh, are as much assimilating the data available into a concrete model um, that serves as a pause point to understand what we do and don't know. And this is, this is kind of what motivates a lot of our efforts in on the computational side is I don't know if there's enough effort has, that's gone into understanding questions like how diffusion, how chemical reactions... Uh, are um, done in a compartment like a synaptic spine. And there, ha I mean, there has been some effort along that, so it's not like a completely, um, it's not like we're working in a complete vacuum, but there is a wealth of information from biochemistry perspective, and from me making measurements of diffusion that all need integrated in a way that can actually lead to the next most appropriate question. So, I think for us, one of the most exciting things is to have a simulator established where we think we can actually start to put at least all the pieces together. Uh, and then again, we will pause and say, what is the next most important thing? And luckily the lab has tools that we can investigate some of these things at the appropriate level of analysis that I think will be, that will be informative. Uh, like being able to do high resolution reconstructions of molecules. Um, and also, hopefully, advances will happen in um, being able to make measurements within spine volumes. 
for some of the either diffusion measurements or biochemical interactions, and obviously in live neurons is the is the goal. Um, that would then be the next set of kind of advancements from a technical perspective that would help. But I, I personally believe that we have a lot of information. It just hasn't been optimally organized and utilized and pulled into a way that we can really do an appropriate job of stating the next most important question. So do you have a background as uh, in, in like structural chemistry and in, in physics? Because it seems like you've got your group that you continually publish with. You've got a physicist, you've got a bioinformaticist, you've got all these people sort of working in concert. When you read these papers, even when the focus is very chemistry-oriented, they all read from a biologist's perspective, which I assume is, is yours as the sort of group head. Yeah, I think you, you, it's, it's the um, fortuitous position of being around a lot of really talented people uh, that bring those kind of skill sets to the problems. Uh, I'm not trained in any of those areas imaging or physics, uh, computational work, but uh, it's, it's always been the lab's kind of um, principle has been that the question will drive whatever technology we need to use to answer it. So in that case, you've got to go out and find the tool to address the question properly. And so that's why it seems like there's a wealth of different approaches uh, that are being employed, but that's because we believe they're all necessary to answer the fundamental question of, really, I mean, what we'd like to know is exactly what a spine computes. How does that input property happen, input, output, transformation happen? And then what adjustments are made to lead to a new state where we think some encoding has happened and uh, you can get a new output. Uh, so, and I think it'll require all those types of uh, technical approaches to really address that problem. So, and hopefully we'll add a little bit, maybe from one or two of those perspectives. Excellent. We look forward to it. Thank you for being with us, Neil. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you. Thank you.